1: So I want to tell you who the big winner this week, you know, like Washington's big winner this week.
2: Yeah. Somebody
3: won?
1: Ty Cobb's mustache.
4: Oh. oh. Wait, because
3: it's like the last mustache stand. No, because
1: remember when all the mustache jokes when Bolton came on and Ty Cobb left? Yes. Uh, we were all saying like Bolton's mustache to Ty Cobb's mustache. <laughs> there can be only one. Yeah. Now Ty Cobb's mustache gets the last laugh. That's right. Yeah. Uh. He shot him down in the street.
2: Do you think we're going to see a new fashion trend among Republicans of waxed mustache ends now?
1: I would follow Ty Cobb over any hill for that mustache.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ben, I'm just saying, as as the other witness, no.
4: (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the you can't fire me, I quit edition. I'm Shane Harris, still gainfully employed. You For can't now. quit For now. me. <laughs>
2: I'm fired. <laughs> I'm <am> firing you.
4: <laughs> this really was. I mean, this was an object lesson. No pun intended. And in exactly that.
1: Like you can't. Totally. No, uh, I quit. Uh, no, I said yesterday. I gave him a letter of resignation. No, I tweeted you. You're fired. I love the whole like texting Fox News people yes. in Live real on air. time. Live on air. Yeah. No, I quit. You oh, know?
4: Bolton texted, like, every reporter in town. It it's was awesome. amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, the, suddenly you're exposed like, the guy who's been accused of, by the way, who got fired because people think he's leaking too much.
3: <laughs> Funny how he has the numbers the of city. every reporter in <laughs> <on> Washington, <laughs> D.C. <laughs> on, that, Let me look
1: at this. <laughs> no, I just I, – you know, whatever one says about John Bolton, he is a formidable opponent. And the president just picked a fight with somebody who – there is nothing he won't do. Well, there's and nothing
2: Trump won't do. I mean, this is just getting started. But Trump
1: doesn't usually fight against other people who are power players the way he does.
2: John Bolton with nothing left to lose. Exactly. <laughs> it's going
1: to it's going to be fun. All right, to watch. we'll
4: save that for the discussion. On the Well, first of all, I'm here with Tamara Kaufman, Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi guys. Hi. Hey. Jane. This week, Donald Trump and John Bolton finally part ways. The CIA had a spy in the upper reaches of the Kremlin, then got him out of Russia. And Trump's Middle East peace negotiator calls it quits. He did quit. He wasn't fired,
2: as far as we know. <laughs> as far as we know. Like as he's as texted
1: know. everybody in the press. <laughs> 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 uh, all
4: right. Let's get into it with Bolton. Tammy, I feel like this is this is a separation that surprises absolutely no one. It, it seemed like this relationship was kind of doomed from the start. Uh, you know, some have compared it to a political odd couple situation. Are you at all surprised that he's gone
2: I'm not surprised that he's gone. I think actually um, this has been approaching for months. If I had to put a date on when this departure became inevitable rather than just likely, it would be the day this summer that the president decided not to carry out a strike against Iran in retaliation for downing our unmanned aircraft. Look, President Trump hired John Bolton knowing and saying very explicitly that there were things on which they did not see eye to eye, particularly Bolton's proclivity for the use of American military force as compared to Trump's proclivity to keep the United States out of military entanglements abroad. And I think we saw them have rather different instincts on North Korea as well as on Iran and most recently on the negotiations with the Taliban over American withdrawal from Afghanistan. And more than once, you know, Bolton would be out on the road somewhere saying something in a foreign capital and the president would pull the rug out from under him with a statement back here at home. So even if the president hadn't gotten fed up, uh, which he apparently did over the issue of meeting with the Taliban, I think there would have been a point at which Bolton got fed up. As, you know, I think we've mentioned in previous podcasts, Bolton has actually turned over the last couple of months to spend more and more time abroad. This is after he had basically abandoned any semblance of an interagency national security policy process here in Washington. So he already wasn't really doing the job of a national security advisor. You know, preparing interagency options for the president's consideration and advising the president. And the president didn't want his advice as a national security advisor. Yeah, so look, there are so many parts to the story
3: and like analyzing the breakup story elements of it, including my personal favorite tidbit is the I miss you phone calls to HR McMaster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which it's like, <laughs> HR, he hasn't changed. Okay, but also we had a good time, didn't we? Why did McMaster take the phone calls? That's what I'm wondering. (laughs) But putting that aside. Material for the book. You know, look, they they were obviously on a collision course for a long time. And it was just last week on this podcast that we were laughing about sort of the extent to which Bolton had been obviously marginalized and noting that he wasn't in a tenable position because you cannot have a national security advisor who is not trusted, is not relied on by the president, doesn't oversee a policy Literally was not
4: allowed to take the piece plan for the Taliban with him to go read it in private had to have a monitor while he read it
3: right. So this is not surprising. It's, it's again, the chaos of doing it by tweet without having anybody else lined up is crazy. But sort of putting that to the side, I, I think the big looming question here is not sort of tears for John Bolton no longer being in the White House. I, I do think it's reasonable to say we are probably less likely to find ourselves in a war now than we were yesterday. So I guess that's a good thing. You know, I, I,
1: I-, I want to say a few words in defense of John Bolton here, because I actually think he has performed in important ways important public services over the last uh, however long it's been i don't mean this backhandedly although you know john bolton is somebody whose uh, views are extreme and very dissimilar from my own that said the most important thing about john bolton in this context is that his views on many important issues are diametrically opposed to the president's and that means that on the issues on which john bolton is extreme. The president, like, for example, wanting to attack Iran, the president prevents him from doing what he wants to do. But on a whole bunch of other issues where John Bolton's views are actually relatively mainstream, like, for example, that NATO is important, uh, Bolton has actually done things to restrain the president. And he, for example, Last year at the NATO summit engineered the communique weeks before the summit even happened to prevent Trump from blowing it up. And, you know, he's probably responsible for the Taliban, for there not having been a summit meeting with the Taliban at Camp David.
2: And but that doesn't mean there won't be one yeah, in no, a couple of no, weeks. No, no. But, the, but,
1: but the point is that, you know, people are quick to point out, and rightly so, the area where Trump has restrained Bolton, and thank God for that. There are also a bunch of areas where Bolton has probably effectively restrained Trump. And I actually kind of regret that that will not be continued to be the case. These are two people whose manias counteract one another. So Madison in Federalist 51 describing the separation of powers writes famously that the great security against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving those who administer each department the necessary means and personal motives to resist the encroachments of the others. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition." This is exactly that, only it's eccentricity and insanity. And having Trump and Bolton (laughs) together allowed (laughs) eccentricity and insanity to counteract eccentricity and insanity. It was pretty effective.
3: Yeah, But look, a a few points. One, because you actually aren't making a different point than the one (laughs) I was about to make, but it's – I award John Bolton no points for restraining Trump in a world in which we were 10 minutes away from a military strike on Iran. So I think the idea that we're looking at John Bolton's tenure and thinking, well, this was the steady hand like, the craziness clearly pulled in either direction. And we've been in a perilous situation and and an erratic situation. And, and that's a situation in which the risk of uh, serious unintentional escalation is is just higher. So I continue to believe that it, it might be lower without John Bolton. And, and this sort of the, the point I was leading to was, it matters less the breakup story and how we got here and more what happens next. And I actually don't think Anybody knows what happens next, including the president of the United States. And so, you know, it's not about like, you know, don't cry for me, John Bolton. It's about who the hell is going to take this job now and whether or not we're going to see you know, Mike Pompeo become the new Kissinger and sort of be the National Security Advisor slash Secretary of State. Whether or not we're going to have someone come in and actually try and run a policy process for a change—that's
4: not going to. happen. If
3: there's going to be some new, at least they're sort of at a moving paperwork level. If they're going to try and you know bring in uh, you know Brian Hook or some sort of more establishment figure to try and do this all over again, and, you know. And I would note we are sitting here on the 18th anniversary of 9-11. The national security advisor job is a really important one to actually keeping this country safe. And so the idea that, like, we don't know what we're hurtling towards because, frankly, the president doesn't know what he wants or needs in a national security advisor is,
2: I, I don't know, terrifying. Okay, so before we get too breathless... I think we have to acknowledge that John Bolton has not been acting as a national security advisor for some period of time. There is one and only one person in the White House that I can see who seems to have the ability to put things on the president's agenda or take them off, who seems to have the ability to – channel views or information or warnings or alarm bells from executive branch agencies to the president. And that's Mick Mulvaney. He's the only person the president seems to trust. I thought you were going to say Mike Pompeo. I thought, I <laughs> gonna say, I thought no. you were going
1: to say Jared Kushner.
2: <laughs> and, and so I think we have to acknowledge that for everyone in these national security agencies, if they needed to get the president's attention on something or if there was a conflict between them that needed to get resolved... It's already landing on Mick Mulvaney's desk, and that's been true for a while. So I don't think effectively anyone is going to take this job who's going to take that away from Mick Mulvaney, A. B, I think the more significant impact is not on what happens inside the non-existent national security policymaking process of the Trump administration. I think the more important consideration is how does Bolton's departure affect the way Trump personally makes decisions about foreign policy and how does it affect the way foreign interlocutors view Trump on foreign policy. I think that there are a number of American friends as well as maybe some American adversaries who understood Bolton's presence in the Trump universe as representing a certain point of view and making sure that that point of view was before the president. And so if you're You know, if you're an American partner who has a harder line on Russia and Crimea, for example, or a harder line on Iran, if you're one of the Gulf Arab states or the Israelis, then you felt better knowing that Bolton was there because you knew your view would at least be represented, even if the president didn't ultimately agree with it. Now that view is gone. And the only people who are there are people who are totally subservient to the president's instincts. And that takes us to what are the president's instincts? And what to me is interesting about the Trump-Bolton interaction is that Trump sort of brought in somebody who represented part of his instinctive approach to the world, the belligerent part. Like if you look at Iran – Policy, for example, Trump had this instinctive hostility to Iran, instinctive hostility to the Iran nuclear deal because it was Obama's, but hostility toward Iran and came in with a very belligerent view. But at the same time, he had this instinctive desire not to get into a military confrontation with Iran. So he had Bolton in, you know, to kind of help represent the hostility and belligerence. But at the end of the day, he fell back on the I don't want to have a military confrontation. I I think you could say the same thing about North Korea policy. You could say the same thing about China trade policy, where Bolton wasn't really playing much of a role. You could say the same thing about Venezuela on a host of foreign policy issues. Trump has warring impulses, which is part of why it's such a capricious and incoherent foreign policy policy. And I don't think Bolton could have changed that. He didn't change it, and I don't think it's going to change now.
3: So I think your point on Mick Mulvaney is actually super interesting in part because this little tidbit of reporting about Bolton, that one of the people that they're thinking about replacing uh, Bolton with is Mick Mulvaney's national security advisor, to which you yeah. have to say, the acting chief of staff has a national security right? advisor.
2: Right, right. And like, the exactly. idea that these little feet And is he don't... by definition acting? <laughs> <laughs> like the acting to the the <laughs> He's the acting assistant to the acting chief of staff.
4: <laughs> well, we should also spend a moment, too, just on uh, noting that the, uh, the Afghanistan peace process falling apart – seemed to be the inciting incident, namely that the president seems to have thought that that Bolton was out there essentially talking down this thing and hoping for it to fail and and, and working behind the scenes. But we
1: Which should, he probably was. Wait,
4: he insisted he wasn't leaking his stuff, but like clearly, as we talked before, no one believes that's true around him. But that peace process is, for all intents and purposes, dead. And we don't have a ton of time to go into it right now. But what struck me was that All right, the president had this, I think most people would say, including Republicans, ill-advised idea of bringing the Taliban to Camp David, you know, days before the 9-11 attacks, putting obviously the horrible symbolism and the reward that that could be seen as giving to the Taliban. But the deal wasn't even finished yet. Yeah, And there was a lot of silly – you know, had said, you know, that, yes, we're getting close. Pompeo had said, just we're getting close. But it wasn't there yet. The Taliban knew it wasn't there yet. And what seems to me is this is kind of illustrative of how it often goes with Trump, where he jumps ahead of the process, goes for the big theatrics and the big show – and then not all the players are ready for that yet, and it falls apart under its own weight, and now it's it's dead. And maybe he'll turn it back on again, like how he said that North Korea talks forever, but then he turned it back on again. But he really does, for whatever slim process there is that's going on here, it seems like he kind of, in this one, stepped on it and kind of crushed it by stepping on it, and now everyone's got to pick up the pieces and put it back together. But
1: this is, of course, very typical of the way he operates, right? So he loves the theatrics of a deal and is uninterested in a deep sense in the details or content of a deal. And so he wants to have a summit with Kim Jong-un three times to get to a deal without ever thinking through the substance of what that deal could be, right? And he wants he wants to announce – I don't know why he wants you know a photo op with the Taliban to announce it. Yeah, that actually seems like a really bad photo op to me. But he's – for some reason, he's excited about it. Well, Reagan had
2: one, right? <laughs> yeah, Before you know, they
1: were that Taliban. time ton- yeah.
2: Taliban. <laughs> you know, you know,
1: fighters. little bit – get all Charlie Wilson's yeah, war yeah, on yeah. Me. Yeah. Um,
4: He hasn't seen that movie.
1: Bolton – is the ultimate ankle biter, right, bureaucratically. And what is his deep, deep talent is scuttling other people's plans that don't consist of his own. And so he wants – and he's a pretty traditional neocon of an extreme – nature. And so what does he want to do? He wants to prevent bad deals with bad people. And so you have this kind of perfect pairing where the president is kind of ebulliently excited and ahead of where any reasonable understanding of the facts of a relationship would lead you in relation to a deal. And you have this guy who's like a professional scuttler bureaucratically frantically scuttling uh, these deals. And so it's unsurprising they hate each other.
2: Well, yeah, I also think that this is, you know, this is Trump once again getting in his own way. And I think we're about to see this happen again with the Iranians. It's clear that the president is very, 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 very interested in trying to have a meeting with the president of Iran, And they're pushing to try and make something happen during the U.N. General Assembly meetings, which are coming up in a couple of weeks. And there's just no reason, like the Taliban, there's no reason why the Iranians would want to do a big photo op like this without having some concessions from the United States clearly in their pocket, not just a promise, because They've all seen what this president does, and a promise isn't good enough and an indication isn't good enough. They're going to want it in hand, and I don't think that they're going to get it.
4: All right. Well, let's move on to another corner of intrigue. Um, I'm going to make the case that the CIA is having a good week. Yeah.
2: (laughs) All right. Let's hear that case, Shane
4: Harris. Um, It's
2: Taco Tuesday in the
4: cafeteria. (laughs) Uh, Earlier this week, there was reporting from Jim Shudo over at CNN that the CIA had extracted or exfiltrated, if you want to use the term of art, a uh, very high-level source who had, uh, as as it turns out from subsequent reporting, uh, had been providing information to the CIA about the 2016 election interference. Um, This person was so highly placed, it seems, that they were among potentially the most valuable assets the CIA has had in Russia for a very long time. Uh, And sometime in the spring of 2017, maybe moving into summer of 2017, the agency got this person, according to reporting, out of Russia and resettled him elsewhere. Now what we know from more reporting by the Times and the Post is that this individual appears to be a key source if not the key source that was used to inform the intelligence community's assessment back in 2016 that not only was Russia behind the election interference campaign, the hacking and dumping of emails, which if you haven't listened to the report, go listen to it. Um, But this was the person that told us essentially Putin had directed it. Putin wanted it done. Uh, And this person had been a source working for the agency for more than a decade. Now, obviously, anytime, Susan, you have to relocate a source, it's done because the agency determines that the that his identity has been discovered he's been compromised in a way his or her life could be at risk but it also strikes me that given the just enormously hard challenge of developing human intelligent assets inside russia not to, to say nothing of inside the decision making apparatus of the russian government that that is a- astonishing an astonishing feat for which I'm sure probably many people in the intelligence community would applaud the CIA for developing someone like that who apparently was turning over good information for more than a decade.
3: Yeah, so a couple of points. I want to add one data point to this conversation about what the CIA might have done and why that I haven't actually seen observed anywhere else. And Shane, I'm interested whether or not you think this is a ridiculous leap. Um, So another thing happens in May 2017 that's publicly reported. And this is the initial reports about the CIA having lost an immense number of sources in China. Um, And so this is a period of time in which the CIA, according to public reporting, um, is very, very concerned that large numbers of their assets in a foreign country, have been killed and uh, is liable to be especially worried about sort of compromising human assets uh, in foreign countries. So, whether or not that's actually sort of related to the CIA's thinking or just another illustration of how dangerous this stuff is, that people really are killed, that it it happens far more often than the public is aware of, and and uh, the agencies take this really seriously. They really do take their obligations to foreign nationals who assist the United States really seriously. Um, one of the things that's sort of alarming about the way the president talks is sort of talking about people who help U.S. intelligence as if they're traitors, like, right, that, you know, he doesn't really want to get human from other countries because it makes it harder for him to do deals. Like, These are people who risk their lives sometimes for money, but often um, because they have a genuine, genuine ideological Commitment to things like freedom and um, uh, and U.S. values, and so you know this is this is dangerous stuff. It's important stuff. Um, A couple things about the story and sort of critiques about the story. So there's been a lot of criticism um, of the media reporting about this and whether or not um, this was an example of sort of excessive reporting that might have compromised this individual's life now or endangered him now. Um, I think it's probably relatively unlikely based on the reporting. It it sounds as the CIA likely took action weeks ago, right? Or, or should have been in a position to know. So the idea that sort of the additional reporting here um, necessarily sort of puts this right, person in And you mean like the, the reporting
4: once he's resettled, presumably in the exactly. United States. Exactly. So yeah. both
3: um, reporting on where this individual might be located in the United States. You know, the other thing is that now that it's been reported, um, you know, that there was uh, an individual in, in chain, you can talk about sort of whether or not these are necessarily the same people, um, but a high level Russian individual who had, quote, gone missing, on a family vacation in Montenegro had been spotted in the United States. This has been uh, the Post reported. This was reported in Russian media. So if you work in an intelligence agency and you have ongoing access to classified information and you are late to work or you're sick and you forget to call, in two hours on the dot, you will get a phone call. And if you don't answer that phone, you'll start getting more phone calls and more phone calls. And then sometimes a military police officer will show up at your house. And it's because the United States has had precisely this experience of being like, huh, you know, somebody didn't show up for work. And then they turned on the television and surprise, they were in Moscow. So, um, So this is intelligence protocol that exists for lots of different countries as soon as this person didn't show up for work or was exfiltrated from the country, Um, the Russians certainly were aware of who had left uh, and likely had spent quite a bit of time um, figuring out where they'd gone. And if uh, reports are accurate that this person was living in the United States under their own names, the idea that this is tipping the Russian government is, is probably relatively unlikely. You know, that said, this is astonishing that, you know, we had such a sensitive source. And it speaks to how afraid the CIA was that they would pull somebody in such an incredibly valuable position. I mean, this is not an easy call to make. And clearly part of this was concern about the either Trump personally or just the general administration's carelessness and leaking and, you know, Trump giving information to the Russian ambassador in the Oval Office and and I think it shows how worried the CIA would have to be in order to take that kind of action. And then I think the last question is, where does this actually leave us? The CIA sources are obviously saying we're now blinded inside the Kremlin. That's entirely possible. Sources like this are are extraordinarily rare. That said... If you were to find yourself in this position at the CIA, you would certainly want the Russians to believe you. We are now completely blind. We don't know anything about what you're doing. So, maybe also take that with a grain right. of, of skepticism as well.
4: Ben, let's talk a little bit too about you know what preceded apparently this this extraction, which we think now happened in May or June of twenty. 20- 17. And to the point of the individual living in the United States, we've reported this person's name, Oleg Smolenkov. He was definitely an aide to a very senior, very senior foreign policy advisor, almost like a national security advisor to Vladimir Putin. We are not sure, nor are we reporting, <laughs> that Oleg Smolenkov is the person who was extracted, who was the one providing intelligence that went into the intelligence so assessment. So it would be
3: a reasonable inference.
4: I think there's a reasonable inference, yes, that, that they, they, they hit Oleg Smolenkov's Profile and resume very closely matches the kind of person you would presume would be close to Putin. And and Ben, to you, this this, this point, we know a lot – well, maybe not a lot, but we know some key things about who that human source likely was because when the Obama administration released its intelligence community assessment and there was subsequent reporting – It was kind of not leaving much to the imagination that like, geez, the CIA has a really good human source someplace telling them what Vladimir Putin is thinking and saying. Right.
1: So, yeah, I I think there's a there's a few important elements here. So one of them is that the ICA itself leaned pretty far forward in talking about Vladimir Putin's intentions and Which we, are always hard to divine Right. So that's a super sensitive thing when you're talking about what somebody's thinking, what he's intending to do. And the ICA said very specifically that the Russians did this because at the most senior levels, they decided to help Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. And that was interpreted at the time as a reference to Vladimir Putin. And the uh, intelligence community did not put that out naively without understanding that that would be understood to be a reference to Vladimir Putin. That was a decision to lean lean in and and give away. But it a could have been
3: SIGINT sourcing.
1: It, it was, and within a few weeks of the ICA, there was reporting publicly that this was a reference to super-sensitive human source intelligence. And so this— There was
4: even a reference to human intelligence prior to the ICA, but yeah.
1: And there was also—the time frame here I'm going to be a little bit fuzzy on because I honestly don't remember. Relatively early on, there was a a reference to this person who was a super-sensitive, high-level source— And uh, there was even reporting at some point, I don't remember when, about how John Brennan prevented any of this stuff from going in the president's PDB and only communicated about this material directly with the president. Uh, And so, you know, all of this was out long before this story was uh, released. And so, uh, you know, on the one hand, for people in the intelligence community who are upset with the press... It's not the press that gave out all this information about your super sensitive human source. It's you guys who gave it out. Number two, I think the most interesting single thing about this story is that no two news organizations who have reported it give the same reason for his exfiltration. Jim Sciutto in the original CNN report, which you know the CIA kind of sort of denies, uh, but only sort of, is that this was in part a reflection of the president's indiscretions with the Russian ambassador and foreign minister in the wake of the Comey firing. Uh,
4: Telling them about an ISIS intelligence
1: source. Correct. Giving away an Israeli operation in that context. The New York Times, uh, this does describe the time frame, by the way, in which the exfiltration seems to have taken place. The Post and the New York Times, by contrast, describe it as Not related to that, but related to anxieties that were developing about this person's security in that time frame. There's a very subtly different account of why this person was exfiltrated. And what that says to me is that different people involved in the exfiltration may have had very different concerns underlying what whatever role they played in it. And this might not have been a single person acting for a single reason. It may have been a bunch of people whose concerns are informed by different sets of, of issues.
2: Isn't it also the case, though, I mean, for those of you who have more engagement with the intelligence community and therefore more insight into this, when you have a human source in such a sensitive placement, the question of whether they are safe or whether they need to be exfiltrated is going to rely a lot on what they believe about their own security and their own position, right and what so, they it, want. so it might be that some of the incoherence in this narrative comes from the fact that you know that they're the one who said, no, it's time to get me out.
4: Well, and to that point, I think number one, absolutely. yes, you cannot force a source to go. You also can't force a source to come and assume a new identity. They almost always do, I think, when they're these sources tell us these former assets. Um, but like in the case of Oleg Smolenkov, People told us it's possible. He may just have said, I want to live a normal life and I'm not going to hide. Um, To your point about it's up to them and the danger they perceive, Bob Woodward actually has a passage in his book Fear from last year that I think was was overlooked at the time that this particular asset that we're talking about who was providing all this information initially didn't want to leave. The CIA wanted to get him out and he kept resisting. And what's also really interesting then is his resistance – If you take New York Times reporting that kind of goes along with this, it would appear that his resistance raised red flags within the CIA that he might be a double agent and that he didn't want to go relocate to the United States because what he was actually trying to do was feed disinformation potentially to the Americans and that's why he didn't want to go. So in other words, when the CIA comes to you and says, man, we got to get you out of here and he says, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. Then they say, why do you think you're fine? That's weird. Uh, But ultimately, The Times has reported him agreeing to be exfiltrated, put to rest the notion that he might have been a double agent and that he was actually intent on going. But to your point, these are human beings we're talking about here with lives and families and histories. And you can't just program them to do what you want them to do.
1: Now, imagine that you're Bill Barr and that you are trying publicly to raise doubts about the integrity of the intelligence community's assessment and you're trying publicly to uh, raise doubts about the origins of the Russia investigation and you're interested in the way the CIA came up with its assessments, wouldn't the fact that at some point there comes to be an anxiety that this person may be a double agent and you've relied on him for your core finding about Putin's intentions? Wouldn't that be a super meaty fact for you to zero in on and and focus on and maybe devote a lot of John Durham's attention to? Well, it certainly
4: might be now <laughs> that it's been reported. Yeah, and I think to, to you know to your point, Ben, I, I would only add that you know Mike Pompeo went and did a scrub of the CIA's r- intelligence and their reasoning for concluding that Russia was responsible and Putin directed this, and he ultimately concurred. Uh, having basically said, show me your work. Now, of course, Durham wants me to show the work, or Barda's, again, it is, you know, a fact that now that this information is public, it probably does become a lot easier for Bill Barr to ask questions about it. Yeah,
3: and I think it. I think Ben's right. It does, right. The reporting that Bill Barr is especially focused on the use of CIA sourcing, you know, this certainly puts it in a little bit more context of what exactly they might be going after. And, and it is alarming in part because of the future implications for it. You know, Shane's right. These are human beings that are complicated animals that have lots of different motivations, who have families. And, people in the future are going to have to decide whether or not they want to help the United States. And I don't know if I was watching this and thinking, are these people trustworthy? Are these people who are worth risking my life for? I don't know how I would answer that question, because we certainly haven't behaved like a country who is committed to honoring the risks that people take by safeguarding their identities, by safeguarding the intelligence that they collect, uh, not to mention actually taking that intelligence seriously or believing it when it's uh, inconvenient to us.
4: So speaking of people who might want to relocate and get a new identity. <laughs>
3: <laughs> or at least
4: relocate. Just relocate. You should probably keep his identity because he's getting out okay. Jason Greenblatt, who-, um, who?
2: Sorry. <laughs> uh, that uh, wasn't even my question to you. That was like a week ago, Shane. Yeah, that was well, so long ago. I
4: think he got in just under the wire because he may have quit like Wednesday afternoon or something, yeah. uh, which is our cutoff time. So Tammy, Jason Greenblatt, remind us who he is and what he was doing and more importantly what his leaving means for the Middle East peace process that we've been hearing so much about.
2: Okay. Jason Greenblatt was the president's Special envoy for Israeli-Palestinian peace. He worked out of the White House um, under the supervision, I guess, of Jared Kushner, official son-in-law. Um, first son-in-law, <laughs> <laughs> Special son-in-law to the president. Um, and uh, until
4: Tiffany gets married, I guess he's the only one. But he's first son-in-law. He's
2: first son-in-law. Uh, and Jason Greenblatt had been staff lawyer, in fact, I think the chief lawyer for the Trump organization for a long time before Donald Trump became president. Um so has a long standing personal relationship with the President and also with um one of the president's other major corporate lawyers, bankruptcy lawyer, David Friedman, now the u s ambassador. To Israel. So Jason Greenblatt and David Friedman and Jared Kushner, three Orthodox Jews from New York, were the the three amigos, were the primary people in the Trump administration tasked with achieving the ultimate deal, Um, the deal of the century, as the Israeli press dubbed it. And one can easily inquire as to what this guy seems to have accomplished over the last couple of years, given that. Uh, the Palestinians will now no longer engage with the Trump administration after the Trump administration chose to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem without acknowledging any Palestinian claims on the city. The Trump administration then retaliated by closing the PLO mission in Washington. The administration has cut off financial assistance to Palestinians, not only to the Palestinian Authority officially, but also to civil society and economic development projects. Um, So basically, the American relationship to the Palestinian half of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is so attenuated at this point that it was going to be an extremely heavy lift to imagine the U.S. mediating peace talks. But on top of that, uh, the Trump administration has made moves that signal that it's very open to more unilateral Israeli preferences for settling this conflict. Moving the embassy to Jerusalem was step one. Step two was recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan, something that Israel hasn't even fully claimed, but that seems to have set a precedent for what uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is pledging to do now, which is to extend Israeli law to Israeli settlements in the West Bank, thereby sort of de facto announcing Israel's intent to hold on to those territories forever and ever. So Greenblatt apparently had told the uh, president early on that he only wanted to stay two years, that he wanted to go back and practice law. But he had also expected, I think, that the peace plan he and Jared have been working so hard on that's so detailed and will be the deal of the century. He expected that to have been released long, long ago. Plan us,
1: interrupt us.
2: Plan us, interrupt us. It was sp- originally supposed to have come out last fall, then last December, then before the Israeli elections, which were called for April, then right after the Israeli elections, then-, then there were new Israeli elections, which are going to be next week. And so now the administration is saying the plan will come out next week, sans Jason Greenblatt.
4: And isn't that also – I mean – I mean, talk about a vote of no confidence by one of the people who was the, the, the architect of the deal. Like, You're I'm saying, out of here. <laughs> yeah, peace out. I mean, yeah. and sorry we didn't deliver uh, at all.
3: Look, don't worry, guys. He's being replaced by Jared Kushner's 29-year-old sp- Former scheduling assistant. Oh, so, also a vote of confidence. <laughs> good luck, Middle East.
4: Avi Berkowitz, it's all you, baby.
3: You know, and look, I I, I know nothing of who Avi Berkowitz is other than Most to say this is, you know, uh, in the words of our former colleague Martin Indyk, who had a. Um, Who knows what it means to be this special envoy for Middle East peace. Um, In in a tweet that I think may have been a wee bit sarcastic wrote, (laughs) if Avi Berkowitz is Jason Greenblatt's replacement, it's a considerable downgrade in the position. He's Kushner's 29-year-old assistant. Nice guy, but does he have the weight or experience of Trump's former real estate lawyer? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. um, My question, too, is, I mean, why –
4: maybe I'm just being uh, naive about Israeli politics or something here – but why in the world would anybody, if, he, if he's presumably Trump, is doing this because you know he wants to say I'm the greatest friend Israel there ever was and I'm going to deliver the deal? How would anybody take this seriously? I mean, not to discount like Jason Greenblatt, I think by many accounts people thought he was doing the best he could and and committed to it, but. My goodness. I mean, there's no plan. And there's a, you know, there's a 29-year-old former scheduler in charge of it now.
2: So, I mean, we were talking before about the worrying impulses and incoherence of Trump foreign policy. And I think this is another example where, you know, maybe Trump wants to do the deal of the century. Maybe that, you know, he thinks that's his ticket to a Nobel Peace prize, after all, President Obama got one, so he should get one too. But on the other hand, he has this drive to protect his own domestic political base, which include evangelical Christians who are, let's say, not huge fans of Israeli territorial concessions to the Palestinians or and were and were reportedly anxious enough about the proposed or not yet public uh, Trump peace plan that they got brought into the White House last March to meet with Vice President Pence for like a reassurance session. Don't worry, the peace plan isn't going to be bad for, for your interests. And so I think that, you know, ultimately Trump's policy on the Israeli-Palestinian issue has been driven from the beginning by that evangelical constituency and by domestic politics and not actually by what's in the interests of Israelis or Palestinians or the United States.
1: I, I do think it's possible to take this whole thing a little bit too seriously in the sense that the uh, plan that Jason Greenblatt and Jared Kushner and What's his name? David Friedman, the ambassador were supposedly working on, was a walking joke over a very long period of time, which had the effect. It was a long term set of negotiations which outraged Palestinians, uh, delighted Israelis in theory and never had the slightest possibility of producing a deal if a deal requires multiple parties to agree to it it was a series of aspirational conversations toward a proposal that that had never had any chance of being accepted and all that was before anybody ever produced a
4: plan. You know what this and, sounds like? It's like a real estate deal. Well,
1: <laughs> it's a little bit like Trump Tower Moscow, actually, right? It's like the, the, the Middle East deal. And it's always, you know, three months from, from being released. And Jason Greenblatt seems like an earnest fellow who actually took his job in producing this pretty silly piece of work very seriously. but. If the result of his departure is that this thing is set back or is going to be managed by an intern, I'm not sure how the world is very different. To but be have honest. you guys
2: thought about an economic agreement yet? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's the thing: like, yes, we can laugh about it, and the notion that this administration, in these circumstances, with these experts in charge, would produce a plan that Israelis and Palestinians would embrace is, I agree, a joke. But there is a darker possibility here that I think we have to at least mention, which is that the goal is not actually to achieve a peace deal or even to present a peace deal. It's to reset the table of American policy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That is what certain right-wing supporters of Israel in the United States who support the president as well and certain Israeli right-wing politicians are believing and hoping for, that what will emerge here is a so-called peace plan that is actually a statement of a new American policy that embraces the Israeli settlement project, that embraces permanent Israeli control over large chunks, if not all, of the West Bank, and that basically takes away the policy that has existed since President George W. Bush of American support for Palestinian statehood. And that that could be happen.
4: And Netanyahu has announced, right, if he is if wins the election, he's going to annex a huge part of the West Bank.
2: He has said that he will start with the application of Israeli law to about a third of the West Bank in the Jordan Valley. And, you know, and so the question is, does the Trump administration then turn around and say, OK, our peace plan is that you do more of that. That's awesome.
4: Right. Netanyahu's writing the peace plan. All right. Ordinarily, this is the part of the show we do object lessons, but this week there was so much frickin' news, you guys.
2: Life is the object lesson. Life Shane. is the
4: object lesson. The Italy. object
1: lesson is all the other shit that we're not talking <laughs> about. Oh, life comes <laughs> at you
4: fast. So we're gonna quickly run down some stories that we could not get to, but deserve mentioning. Uh Jim Mattis has a new book out. Being very silent about President Trump, even though he wasn't so quiet about Barack Obama when he wrote his last book.
2: Or Joe Biden. Yeah. yeah. I'm about halfway through this book. So more to come.
1: Although he did say, to be fair to him, he did say that the stuff about Biden he wrote uh, before, uh, <laughs> he knew before he, was before he went president. into government. And so he it was <laughs> uh, uh, he's just publishing it late. And if he was writing it now, he wouldn't have included it. So good. it's like who could have
3: guessed Joe Biden was going to run for president. Grandfathered
4: in crazy
1: um, uh, is Donald Trump
4: strong arming the new president for Ukraine Zelensky for political gain can
3: we get back to this story later because oh, yeah. it's super be. disgusting and super important and we should let's let's put it on our like things we'll get to right. when the world is on yeah to list. be clear
4: we will almost certainly be going to all these stories because they are in the slow cooker right i just now. want to
1: say when we do get back to the Zelensky story Uh, The reason Trump hates Zelensky is that he's confused him with Saul Alinsky.
3: (laughs) Common mistake.
1: Especially for President Trump. The
3: White House is
4: considering a... (laughs) Hey, you can say it. (laughs) The White House is considering a study on gun control and mental illness. And essentially, as I understand it, trying to look at whether or not we could develop... Data mechanisms for knowing when somebody is mentally so ill. So
3: Trump watched the Minority Report. Yeah, totally. also, Like
4: I just want to say, like somewhere John poindexter is laughing his hiney off. Oh. <laughs> it's total information awareness for gun control. Yeah, we, we have the cool tried graphics. Tried <laughs> 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 I mean, it's like, my God, we have tried this. We're going to try it again. Maybe I don't. It's that that was a woo. Okay. Um, turns out the air force was refueling for maybe not great reasons near trump's golf resort in scotland turnberry
3: god if only the founding the fathers had thought of this you know if they when they were they writing the constitution if they'd been like you know what we shouldn't let us states or foreign countries pay the president money that could be bad <laughs> But, you know, they just, they never got around to it. Yeah. And this a reminds shame.
4: you, an emolument doesn't have to be foreign for it to be an emolument. There
3: are two emoluments, closets, yes, friends. There are Brother two. and sister. Dose. That's
4: right. The Air Force could be staying at your hotel and therefore paying <laughs> you. Okay. Uh, Mar-a-Lago Thumb Drive Lady. Remember her? She was convicted in court, you guys. She's she my did hero. It.
3: She's,
2: why is she your hero? <laughs> I don't
1: know. She and Marianne <laughs> just... Williamson and Ty Cobb's mustache. <laughs> oh, yeah. These are the people who I... Men's I really
2: <laughs> you
4: would go anywhere with them. I love it. Yeah, so she's been – what could she get? Six years?
1: Six
3: years. I, I don't think she'll get that oh much. She God. was convicted of like a lot, making false statements to a federal agent. Can so. we
2: just agree she's one of the most incompetent spies that has been convicted in U.S. for real? in a while? I
4: mean, she is not going to be a highly placed CIA <laughs> in Beijing <laughs> anytime soon. And she might want to live under her own name. It's entirely possible. Uh, and not really a national security – sort of. It's a homeland security story, but there's just unbelievable. Saga. We can't even talk about it now because it's still unfolding. With Noah and the latest on Trump apparently directing Mick Mulvaney, who then told Wilbur Ross to tell the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to issue a statement admonishing the National Weather Service for saying, no, Hurricane Dorian is not. Heading towards Alabama. At
1: least he didn't tell Mick Mulvaney to nuke the hurricane. <laughs>
2: yeah, are you saying it could always be worse? Because I would agree it could always be worse, but that don't also, mean it's good.
3: Add into atrocious hurricane-related stories that the U.S. has now announced that we will not be granting temporary protected status to uh, people who have been displaced by Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. Oh. A utterly indefensible, shameless, cruel policy.
4: Maybe they could relocate to Alabama. Oh, that's the end of the podcast, you guys. That lightning round wasn't so bad.
2: No, but it. It, it doesn't is, feel so overwhelming. Really? It made it me want to like hurl myself out of the window. No. It, oh,
4: God. It, it
2: was less overwhelming than the week of news was. Yeah, it but was. just a little. But
4: we made it through. And yeah. you all made it through with uh, listening to us. And we appreciate it.
2: Rational- and we all
3: survived John Bolton's term <laughs> as national security advisor. <laughs> hey, Congratulations. You
4: made it. If you're still listening to this podcast, <laughs> did you too have survived the Bolton administration tenure. <laughs> Oh, well, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can get Rational Security mustaches at John Bolton Security Store. Forward slash mustache. We will
1: have a special edition John Bolton's mustache <laughs> lawfare shirt. Oh my. No, we Law. won't
4: actually. LAW on one side, <laughs> fair on the other. Yeah, there you go. I bet you John Bolton reads lawfare. <laughs> this is maybe you could get him to write an op ed. Uh, uh, welcome anytime. We any can't afford a John Bolton. <laughs> <time. laughs> <laughs> There's so many publishers everywhere being like, wait, how much <laughs> cash do <laughs> we have on? Shit, only $3 million? Oh, come Wait, on, Elliot dig Brady deep, dig deep. pay for
2: it. Oh, my
4: goodness. <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L security. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating in review. It's how John Bolton is going to find us and listen to the show. Our audio engineer this week is Jacob Schultz. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by John Bolton. You know, the president has often confused him with Michael Bolton.
3: <laughs> oh, God.
4: <laughs> so as per <part> the— <laughs>
3: A true story, not a joke. Not a joke,
4: Not a joke. It's happened many times in his presence. So um, Bolton's going to go ahead and run with it and record a cover of How Am I Supposed to Live Without
2: you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, nice. Very good. It's going to be hot. It's going to be hot, hot, hot. <laughs> with
4: Sophia Yan on synth. On behalf of my good friends, Tamara coffey been Ben with us and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. I'll see you next week if I haven't been fired or quit. Bye.